We gave everything of ourselves to the machines, poured into them our heart's blood and gave them life. The boundary between us dissolved and nestled there in the machine's loving breast, we embraced the void. void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the new story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 115 of Embrace the Void, where the future looks shiny and chrome. I am your host, Aaron. And I've got an extra long interview for you today, so no need for setup. Let's just get to the future. My guest this week is John Danaher, a senior lecturer in law at NUI Galloway, Ireland, and author of the book Automation and Utopia, Human Flourishing in a World Without Work. John, would you like to say hi to the void? Uh, Hello. Um, I guess I should be screaming into the void. That's what I feel like I should be doing, but okay, hello. (laughs) Well, it's it's polite to just start yeah. with a high, and if you get to a scream at some point, it's okay. It's if the existential angst overtakes me so. at some point. No. Right, if the spirit moves you. Uh, so thank you so much for chatting about this. You you sent me your book and, and was asked if I was interested, and I absolutely was, because it's very much in our wheelhouse, and I enjoyed reading through the book, and I've got lots of lots of notes, lots of things to cover here. So I guess let's just dive right in. You You start off by saying... Um, human obsolescence is imminent. I'm curious, first of all, what got you personally interested in the great robot replacement? Yeah, that's a good question. But also, you know, something I've realized when you're talking about a book to people is that this is the question that they always ask. And it's the question that I never really know how to answer in the sense that like, I'm, I, I'm not oh, sure that like the motivation for writing the book is is all that interesting in itself but like i've just been writing about the ethics of technology for a long time uh probably the best Mm -hmm. part of the last decade or so i'm kind of interested in anything to do Mm -hmm. with that space but Mm -hmm. i noticed maybe around 2014 2015 there were quite a number of books coming out about you know the future of work and automation and what uh, prospects are for a post-work economy or a future and I noticed that most of mm-hmm. those books tended to focus on the here and now and the threat to work or that automated technologies mm-hmm. posed and were a little bit maybe vague and sketchy about what the post-work future would be, if anything, if, if that was even feasible. And so I wanted to write a book that focused more on that question than on the sort of threats to work in the here and now. Okay, so you're sort of going to take certain things for granted and focus on the medium and long term and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I say in the first chapter of the book that it's a thought experiment to some extent, that it's like, imagine Mm -hmm. if we could do this, what Mm -hmm. would then follow? It's not entirely a thought experiment. I mean, I do spend a good portion of the book trying to make the case for automation Mm -hmm. 
because I think it's necessary to do right. that to get people sufficiently interested or motivated to take the thought experiment seriously. But I wasn't too concerned with defending that first part of the, the um, that kind of conditional of the thought experiment. Yeah, I like the way that you lay it out in the book. You sort of give us four key premises to an argument and you'll make the case for those premises. And you do spend a little bit of time sort of on the uh, implicit assumption of whether automation is possible. Um, and so we'll talk about that a little bit. But do you want to first just like lay out those four key premises that make up the structure of the book? Yeah, so I the book is divided into two halves. So the first half is about automation and the second mm -hmm. half is about utopia. And there are two propositions that are defended in both halves of the book. So the, the first two propositions have to do with the effect of automating technologies on human civilization. The first proposition is that the automation of work is both possible and desirable because work is bad for most people most mm -hmm. of the time in ways that they don't always appreciate. And I think that we should do what we can to hasten the obsolescence of humans in the area of work. The second proposition mm -hmm. is that the automation of life more generally outside of work is a less positive thing and that automating technologies pose certain threats to human well-being and, and flourishing and meaning. The third proposition, mm -hmm. which has to do then to, with utopia, is that the, there are different ways in which we need to try and manage our relationship to, with technology to ensure that it is beneficial to us. One possible way of managing it is to build what I call the cyborg utopia which involves integrating ourselves with mm -hmm. the technology so that we become cyborgs. And I argue that this has advantages, but also many risks and might be less desirable than it first appears. And the fourth proposition is that another way of managing our relationship with technology would be, build, would be to build what I call the virtual utopia. And even though this is something that people usually dislike because it carries within it this notion that we retreat to some extent from the real world, I argue that there are kind of mm -hmm. compelling reasons for favoring this approach uh, in the long run. Yeah, great. I really like this this two halves structure where the first half is kind of the case for why we should automate for towards a utopia in a certain kind of way, and then the second half is like, what could that utopia really look like? What would be the most functional one? I, and I, I am sympathetic to your leaning towards the virtual utopia over the cyborg one. Um, but let's let's work our way there. So your first premise is uh, automation of work is good and possible and therefore should be hastened. So the least important part of this, I guess, for your project as a thought experiment is the, the possible part. But I do at least want to spend a little bit of time sort of pondering what you see as the likely trajectory of the automation of work. It seems to me, for example, that there are there's a lot of sort of extreme optimism with regard to the automation of things like driving. And I'm curious if you feel like um, driving-based work is going to be automated in the near future. Like, when do you see there being more automated drivers on the road than human drivers? Do you have a sense of any of that? I do. And actually, you know, my opinions on this have, have changed a little bit in, even in the past couple of months. So, like, one thing I would say mm -hmm. is that I'm not a fatalist or a determinist when it comes to technology. I don't think and often you get this implicit impression in, in many of the books mm -hmm. that are written about this topic that there's this just kind of natural or inevitable evolution of technology towards the displacement of more forms of work and i don't mm -hmm. i don't think it is natural or inevitable i think it does require facilitation by society to some extent in the shape right. of ideology 
culture norms and laws. So yeah, I just want to kind of emphasize that point at the outset, which, which explains why you're arguing for it and not just saying it's inevitable, right? I mean, you could argue that you know you'd argue for it so that people would accelerate the inevitability, but like I, I think it makes sense to point out that you're not assuming that this is the way it's going to no, go. No, and I mean maybe I could have emphasized this point a bit more on the book, but that was something I hope would be reasonably clear from what I've written that it's not. Um, so, I don't know. You emphasized a lot of yeah. points in the book, so it's okay if you know didn't you need to crack four hundred pages. It's not an inevitable anything. evolution of technology, in in my view, that, and that's why that first proposition is that work, the automation of work is is something that is possible and desirable. So that's what I say: it's possible and desirable, not that it's inevitable. Um, sorry, mm-hmm. so that's maybe like getting into a just uh-huh. a terminological issue, but or uh, we frame the, the debate. In terms of you know will will we have see the widespread automation of work? I think we probably will, and there are kind of two reasons for this. One is just that we see nowadays that more and more tasks that are performed by workers in jobs are capable of being automated, and there are quite a number of these reports that have been done on the different tasks that make up the jobs that are currently. Uh, feature in mm-hmm. in advanced industrial economies, and it seems like, according to most of these reports, about fifty percent of those tasks can be automated, even with existing technologies mm-hmm. or with technologies in the not too distant future. Now, mm-hmm. there is a problem with that kind of argument, though, that that doesn't mean that work more generally is going to be automated, because that's just focusing on the tasks that currently make up jobs in the economy and right. one thing that an economist will always point out to you is that well look we, we've been here before technology has displaced jobs in the past workers in the past but we've always found new jobs for people mm-hmm. you know new skills become relevant there's an economist from mit a guy called david otter who has written about something he calls the complementarity effect for technology so technology doesn't just di- displace human workers it provides opportunities for them to do complementary forms of work that assist machines, and that you know he thinks we will be able to migrate think- to these complementary tasks. And what do you think about this take? Do you feel like we we should try to get to a point where even that complementary work is removed, and that it would be plausible or possible to get to that point? So I think certainly in the, in the short term, we probably will see people being pushed into complementary tasks. But one of the things that I'm interested in is both the kind of temporal dynamics of automation, so how this will unfold over mm-hmm. time, and also whether pushing people into complementary tasks is um, a desirable thing in the long run. Um, so, you know, just because humans can find complementary tasks to assist machines doesn't mean that that's a good thing. I mean, it may result in forms of work mm-hmm. that are much less pleasant for human workers. Like one illustration right. of this, I think, would be the work of uh, somebody who's working in like an Amazon warehouse or something. Yeah, I was just thinking the same people, the people who are afraid of getting murdered by the bots, right, in the warehouse. Yeah, I mean, but not even that, just the kind of pressures that are put on them. So they, they live in this environment that is kind of algorithmically constructed and mediated, okay. and they have to follow instructions mm-hmm. given to them by machines for filling orders to customers, and they place excessive de- demands on them. So th- those workers are complementing mm-hmm. the machines in the... Amazon warehouse, but it's not necessarily mm-hmm. a desirable form of work for them. Fair. 
So one one last question on the side of things. Do you have a sense of which jobs will be the last jobs that'll be automated? Are there things that you feel like will be especially resistant to automation as a career? Yeah, I have a an intuition. I mean, you, you mentioned in kind of correspondence we had beforehand that sports might be something that would be the last mm-hmm. thing to be automated. And that could be true, I think. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. an example here would be, let's say, chess. Okay, it's been true for a very long time that machines are better than humans at chess. But that doesn't mean that machines have kind of displaced human chess players. In fact, as far as I am aware, mm-hmm. human chess is still relatively popular. I don't know if it's at quite the height of popularity that it had in maybe the middle part of the 20th century when it was a focal point for the Cold War. But right. it still seems that it attracts a lot of followers and people still attend and watch chess tournaments and participate in it. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, actually, another example is... You can design a robot that will hit a golf ball straighter and further than any human golfer, but nobody's really mm-hmm. watching that sport, you know? Yeah, that was sort of my thought about sports was that it had, I mean, probably the dexterity side of it is, you know, in some sports, we probably don't have, you know, like full-size robots that can do what NBA players can do, right? We could We could modify them in some way, but if we required them to, like, act like human bodies then we're probably not there in the near future but it's also that like part of some people want to see this done by a human in some kind of way and so those jobs it seemed like might be the ones that would resist automation yeah so i mean that's my point you're right that there are certain kinds of you know physically dexterous activity that robots can't perform at the moment which are intrinsic to many sports so of course we're not going to displace sports players in those fields at the moment but i think that there's a deeper philosophical point here which is that we kind of value sports because of the human performances that mm-hmm. are intrinsic to them but the, yeah right but exactly. that said i think and this will this will be important i think because what we're going to talk about when we get to like the automating of work and whether it's whether it's good to get rid of work um so i do think it's valuable to highlight this about sports here in the beginning yeah but you know the thing i would say about sports is that at least professional sports are elite careers and you know they're not a recipe mm-hmm. for mass employment so I, d- I don't see this as being a sure <laughs> something that a lot of people will do except except in the virtual utopia right in the virtual utopia we can all be sports stars if we want to. we can certainly all be game players that's sort of the idea i have whether we, we are stars is a as maybe a different question I mean, Okay, well, we'll see about what happens when we get to our virtual utopia. We'll see if you can sell me on the box okay. or not. Before before we move on from um, that, I mean, but, I just want to throw yeah. this in there, yeah. okay. which is that like the very first thing I ever wrote about the automation of work was mm. actually a paper on the future of sex work, in which I suggested that sex work mm, and mm-hmm. you know erotic care work as well might be one of the last things to be automated. So, just wanted to throw that in. It's, it'll be. I think it's interesting because it'll be simultaneously one of the things that will be widespread automated, I think, in the relative future, and will also not die out in the sense of becoming fully automated, right? Because there will be plenty of people who will be happy with an AI, and there'll be plenty of people who will still want not AI, it seems Yeah, like. so I think you can make arguments on, on both sides as to, you know, there are maybe attractions to automating it in terms of, you know, there's maybe mm-hmm. less, less ethical cost associated with it. And it's maybe mm-hmm. a way of getting around certain regulations and restrictions against sex work that is are common in many countries. But I, right, I also exactly. think there could be a strong preference for a a human service provider in sex work 
irrespective of the ethics of it. And also, just in that paper, the argument I made was that I think the displacement of workers from other forms of work will mean, unless we do something to radically reform our economy or our system of mm-hmm. welfare, that people will have to find forms of work in which there is a preference for human service providers. And sex work might be one of those things that is right. a viable option for people, even if it's not a desirable option. Yeah, no, I mean, if nothing else, I think the rise of like um, cam people, you know, on, on porn sites like cam video stuff is pretty indicative of how the technology is um, allowing and encouraging people to to shift into other forms of work like that. So, okay, so let's talk about this. the other parts of this first premise. Let's assume for the sake of argument now that like this is possible. And let's talk about why you think it's good, because I think this is something that the, the crux of the argument, the hard part here is. Why is it good to automate all all work? It seems like right because I love my job. You say that you love your job, so but you try to convince me that I should hate my job. So what's your what's your argument for why I should hate my my wonderful job? Yeah, well, I suppose it, you know what is your job? I'm guessing it's pretty much the same as my job, which is I'm yeah I, I'm an teach, academic yeah, teach you know. research that kind of thing. All right, brainwashing minor cult leader <laughs> next sort right. of stuff. Um, so. <laughs> I, you know, I do say in the book that I love my job. Um, it depends, I guess, on the day that you ask me, though. Maybe I don't, I don't always love my job, and there are many aspects that I dislike about it. And I, I don't know how you, how you mm-hmm. feel about your work on an ongoing basis, but I, I tend to think that I've I've quite a privileged position in the modern economy, and I tend to think mm-hmm. that my job as an academic is good, largely to the extent that the duties or expectations of the job are imperfectly enforced at least from a management perspective that you know if if (laughs) if they were actually able to kind of surveil me and police me and enforce all all the kpis and performance indicators that they want on me then i think my job would be pretty Mm -hmm. unpleasant and you know they're I, I won't let your provost know that you apparently are shla- slacking off in interesting ways. Um, yeah, so I, I agree with you, though. Like, you and I both have a very privileged um, position. And I also, I mean, like, I'll concede that there are lots of jobs that I do think it would be good to automate, especially if you could somehow make sure the people in those jobs are provided resources to transition out of being in those jobs. Yeah, so, yeah, I suppose, but, I mean, to to maybe bring it back to the what I actually say in, in the book is that there are a number of different ways in which you can argue that work is bad. So you, you, you can focus on, you mm-hmm. know, the particular tasks of particular jobs. And I, I think you and I would be in agreement here that, you know, some tasks in some jobs are quite pleasant and some tasks are mm-hmm. unpleasant. You know, I I like researching and teaching. I don't like marking student assignments or... um. Sure. A lot of the admin attending meetings that is expected of me in my job. That, those are mm-hmm. small concerns. You know, there are people who do much more unpleasant jobs. I mean, to go back to the earlier example of the the worker in the Amazon warehouse who has to fulfill a certain number mm-hmm. of orders every day and can't take breaks and has their baggage searched as they uh, leave the premises every day. You know, that, so that's a much more unpleasant set of tasks that make up their job. Um. Mm-hmm. But I mean, to, to focus on those kind of particular tasks that makes up jobs would be a, a relatively weak argument against work, I would say, because people would just make the argument that you effectively made, which is that, well, okay, we just get we automate those tasks that are unpleasant, and let's then find some 
other tasks for people to perform that are more pleasant. So we shift into a form of work that mm-hmm. is better for people. So this leads me, I think, to favor a different strategy of arguing that work is bad. Okay. And a part of this has to do with just the definition I have of work, which is that I don't really think of work as a particular set of tasks or activities. Some people do. Some people think work is defined by certain kinds of action. But I, I really think of work mm-hmm. as a condition under which activities are performed. It's really a condition of economic reward or need in some cases. I, I don't want to say need in all cases because not everybody works because they need to, but everybody works mm-hmm. in, under my definition anyway because it is linked to some kind of economic reward. So there's a conditionality to the activities that they perform in that sense. Yeah, this is really tricky to me because like, I think a lot hinges here on how we define work and I worry about defining work that narrowly in terms of only the tasks where people are doing them for financial incentives. Because, I mean, first of all, obviously, there's lots of reasons people do work. I think you mentioned in the book all the different kinds of reasons that people show up to work besides monetary. But even if we, like, expand to those other kinds of consequences, like, I, I worry that this will mean that it makes it very hard to distinguish tasks that are work from tasks that are not work and this will sort of thereby automate everything which leads into the second premise where you have this concern that um, automation of life outside of work is mixed and sort of needs to be carefully managed but the the tension between those two premises hinges upon the ability to cleanly distinguish sort of work from not work um, would you agree at least there's like sort of a, a problem or a, a risk there or concern of some sort? No, I, I agree there's a problem there. And I mean, m- maybe that's something mm-hmm. we can come back to when we discuss the, the second premise, the, the, the problems with automation of mm-hmm. life more generally. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, admittedly, this is kind of pushing off something that y- you might want to address. But I do think there is subject to this notion that work is not a, a particular set of tasks. And so like your... Yeah. Your concern about, well, we can't distinguish between the work tasks and the non-work tasks, and that becomes a problem when we look at automating technologies and their impact on life more generally. Like that, I agree that that's a problem, but I have this intuition or belief in a way that that's only a problem if you see work as defined by tasks as opposed to defined by a condition that attaches to tasks. Okay, well, let me let me say I at least agree with you. I think that there's an important feature of the way that work exists in the reality we live in today where it is associated with being able to live or having a decent quality of life in a way that makes as people have often pointed out makes a lot of these jobs very coercive and thereby harmful so i think i think you're right in like the the sort of marxist critique of the concept of work where it's sort of like um you know i would still love to teach even if I didn't need to do so for financial incentives. And so, like, maybe we can distinguish in some sense between things that people would still love to do, even if there's no financial incentive involved, and make that sort of... Is that getting at kind of what you're thinking as a way to distinguish? Yeah, I think that's pretty much exactly it. And I don't make too much of a deal about Marxism in the book. I I throw in a few casual references to it, but I like that is certainly lurking in the background here is that, that, that notion that the critique of work here is more Mm -hmm. to do with kind of the structure under which work is, is, 
is undertaken or performed as opposed to any particular set set of activities. So I I like mm. teaching and I like researching and I'd probably do it if I didn't if it wasn't attached to an economic reward for me. I think that the problem and I kind of get back to this a number of times in the book is that I think that the economic reward or conditionality that attaches to the work has a kind of corrupting effect on tasks that we would otherwise mm-hmm. enjoy. Yeah, I think that's all. I I definitely agree with all of that, I think. So, I think it's it's valuable to say that like you're not going to argue that humans should stop engaging in activities necessarily. You're going to argue that they should be engaged in under a format where people aren't having to make sort of coerced trade-off choices that involve getting basic resources in exchange for whatever work they're engaged yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. And um, and I can buy that. Yeah, and so right? like this is, just to maybe close out this conversation, mm-hmm. this is the kind of core argument that I make then about the badness of work or why work the automation of work would be a good thing mm-hmm. is that I think that work in the modern world is, is structurally bad insofar as it takes place within a set of institutions, norms, and practices that are bad for many workers and, and oftentimes getting worse as a result of technology. So I, you know, I have five different mm-hmm. arguments for the badness of work in the book. Uh, most of them mm-hmm. I view as kind of interlocking and complementary, but they focus on the coercive aspects of work, the fact that it undermines freedom and choice. It kind of colonizes our lives we have to spend most of our time thinking about it planning for it making ourselves employable that work is becoming increasingly precarious and less pleasant for workers largely as a result of technological innovations in the workplace that enable basically kind of platform owners or certain players within the market like shareholders and company owners to profit at the expense of workers and also right. that I throw in a couple of other points in the book that we see increasing inequality of income in advanced economies in particular in the past 30 mm-hmm. years, 40 years, I guess, at this point in time. And also that according to some surveys anyway, and many people are dissatisfied by work. They're, they're increasingly kind of anxious and less engaged by the work that they do. And I think that's partly because of the kind of dominating influence it has over our lives. And this is tricky because like, uh, you know, as a, as a PTL non-tenure track position, you know, teaching, I love what I'm doing, but I do experience sort of job uncertainty and that, that is anxiety inducing. And I don't get healthcare, which is another massive problem in our country that like complicates this whole picture. Um, And at the same time, you know, if I'm given a choice between doing what I'm doing right now and a future where I'm taken care of, but I don't get to teach at all, that's a hard trade-off for me. And and that'll that's sort of, so that's a way to lead into our second premise here, which is I'm worried about in the automating of work, are you going to make it effectively impossible for individuals who enjoy these activities in a non-work way to continue to do them? Are you able to distinguish between work and outside of work and manage that that distinction effectively? Yeah, so I mean, there's probably two things to say here. So your your sense that mm-hmm. you would be worse off not working, that even if there are these unpleasant features or structural features attached to the, the job that you are performing at the moment, you still would prefer not to work. I think that's true for many workers. And so this is one of the points, again, I try to make 
when I'm arguing against work is that I think many workers in the modern economy are trapped in a kind of collective action problem whereby they benefit from the current arrangement and it's individually rational for them to want to work and they would lose out if they didn't. But the net effect of this is that work is kind of getting worse for everybody collectively. I guess that that argument that argument. Yeah. So yeah, so you're trying you're trying to like motivate me, and I, I get that. Like there is some moral obligation. Like you know, if I get pleasure from teaching, but a bunch of people have to suffer for me to be allowed to get that pleasure from teaching, like it's not really fair for me to preserve that system that's benefiting me in that kind of way. So I, I absolutely am I'm sympathetic to that concern, and I guess I start to wonder. Is it, is there any way to cleave all any of this apart? Like, is it an all or nothing kind of thing? Or is there a way to automate just the jobs that are bad? Because this is like the concern, right? That, um, you know, you, you gave the teaching example, like, um, you know, I really don't like grading. So I would love for someone to automate grading or something like that. And if there's enough people who really don't like every single part of every job there's an incentive to automate every single part of every job. And then once those automated individuals exist, um, is there any reason to continue to hire humanoid teachers or will I be able to find students or what, what does that world even look like? It starts, I think, you know, and, and, and we'll get in a second to the, the second half of the book where you lay out the, the kind of potential hypotheticals, but I just, th- these are the concerns that, that I, I think at least, I have about how this might all play out. Yeah, no, I, so I agree with those concerns. But uh, I mean, so so what I would mm-hmm. say in response is that I think the the problems that you're raising are they mm-hmm. arise within a an economy in which let's say education is largely pursued for instrumentalist or economic reasons. So mm-hmm. if the goal is to produce people who have skills that are relevant to the workforce, then, of course, teaching will be subject to automating pressures whereby you just want the most efficient way of doing the job, the cheapest, lowest cost way of doing, of educating as many future workers as possible. We're not focusing on, you know, the intrinsic pleasures or joys of of teaching. We're just focusing on how it can maximize the bottom line or contribute to economic growth in some way. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. That's fair. So what I'm imagining, and and this kind of again I think links to this notion that work is not a a task per se, but a, rather a condition under which tasks get performed, is that at the moment teaching as a profession is is corrupted by the need for it to be instrumentalist in some way to produce a bottom line sure. or a return for the economy, and uh, certainly this is a pressure that I feel all the time as, as an academic. And I feel it's becoming more mm-hmm. acute over time that you know we're constantly demanded to show how we're contributing to the economy. And you know, mm-hmm. obviously in the U.S., there's a long-standing system of fairly exorbitant student fees for education. We don't have that in Ireland, where I work. We do have some student fees, but there's a a big push on now by mm-hmm. university management to raise these fees. And the main argument that they make mm-hmm. in favor of doing this is because of the return to the student as a in the in the workplace from an education that it, it makes them more viable and more attractive as a worker. So I think mm-hmm. these kind of instrumentalizing pressures corrupt the value, the intrinsic values of teaching. And so what I would imagine or hope for, and admittedly this could be you know one of the more 
speculative and difficult to swallow aspects of the book is that in a world in which essentially productivity is largely machine driven you don't have to worry so much about these kind of instrumental pressures associated with with what your job as you've currently performed so it's not so much about automating the things that we like and we don't like because we still need to be relevant mm. to a marketplace it's just that we are freed from the need to to care about those kinds of things that's fair that's a good point i, I think that's well argued so Hello? you you do a list a couple of other um concerns that you have with automation and like the threat that it could pose to human flourishing are there ones that you are sort of more particularly concerned about that we haven't mentioned here um that you'd want to like maybe wouldn't be obvious to people that you want to bring people's attention yes i mean i have a whole chapter in the book about the kind of reasons to be pessimistic about automated technologies and i look at five major threats that automated technologies pose to human well-being and flourishing like i have a longish discussion above you know what human flourishing consists of which we might get back to because i think Mm -hmm. you you might have had some questions about that but yeah i'm curious actually but yeah go ahead yeah so so like, like most of my concerns really center on the notion of like human autonomy and achievement and agency and the the threats Mm -hmm. that automated technologies pose to that. So I argue that automated technologies undermine the capacity for humans to achieve things. Achievement is central to many theories of human flourishing and meaning, the notion that, you know, to live a a good life, you have to achieve things through your actions. And automating technologies just by their essence effectively sever the connection between human action and some kind of outcome in the world because you're outsourcing the performance of that mm. activity to a machine now you know there, there are different forms that this can take it can be more or less attenuated but i just would argue that it always tends to corrode and undermine human achievement to some extent and like actually one good mm. illustration of this recently and somebody else pointed out to me a friend of mine sven nyholm he um argued that you know, when when Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov in, in chess or when, um, you know, Deep Mind's AlphaGo beat mm-hmm. Lee Doll in Go, in many ways, you know, people weren't like cheering those things on. Maybe some of the d- engineers or designers were, but they weren't cheering them on really as human a- achievements. They were really lamenting them. There was something almost like tragic about them because they removed... Mm-hmm something from humanity they they cut off an achievement from humanity to some extent it was now the the machines that were in the ascendancy and you know actually in the case of DeepMind, this is particularly pronounced because the designers of that machine themselves would say they have no idea how it won the game you know it was right very opaque to them how it actually solved the the problem uh, it just yeah it just I like did opaque, it opacity problem a lot that that these, these AI are not only smarter than us, but smarter in ways where we can't fully grasp what they're doing or understanding sometimes. And that in itself is another level of cutting us off from the world. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I talk about the cutting off achievements, but also another thing closely linked to this is the undermining of human understanding of the world. Our ability to appreciate, draw connections, explain things in the world around us that I think particularly kind of modern ai systems which are opaque to humans for a variety of reasons they tend to corrode or undermine this capacity for 
understanding. Mm-hmm. And like w- one thing that I say, I actually said this in a recent talk I gave, I don't know if I made as much of it in the book as I possibly should have, was that I think our situation with AI nowadays is that we are like pigeons trapped inside a Skinner box where mm-hmm. the AI is rewarding us in various ways, but we don't really know why. We're kind of the victims of the experiment. So like in discussions of AI yeah. and ethics, lots of people talk about AI being a black box. Mm-hmm. But if, the problem with that metaphor in my mind is that it gives a suggestion that it's the AI that's inside the box and we're the ones trying to look in and see what it's doing. But increasingly, I think that yeah. we're actually the ones inside the box trying to look out. Yeah, and you absolutely, I think, you, you highlight this well in the book by by pointing to the sort of ritual formation that occurs when people are engaged in Skinner boxes, especially with, like, intermittent positive reinforcement, um, and that you see human beings in the world today already engaging in these kind of ritual formations to try to please the the god inside of the machine. Um, so I think that's that's an interesting problem that continues to scale as these things get more sort of ubiquitous and opaque. Um yeah. One other thing that you you mentioned in there that I wanted to talk about as well, though, was the the attention manipulation issue, which is very present in the world today. Right, we're already sort of experiencing an epistemic crisis because everyone is under siege in a way with um, attention manipulating systems, and I sort of wonder because we're going to in a second get to here to talking about virtual utopias. Like, is there a really a clean sort of functional distinction now that I think about it between you know, a society where everyone is at the whims of attention manipulation and the society where everyone is at the whims of, of a virtual reality that's just a much more sophisticated attention manipulation system. So there's possibly isn't a distinction between those two things in the way that mm-hmm. you're framing it. Right. But I think I would... So, so I suspect that you're working with a definition or understanding of, de- of virtual reality and what that means that I might not agree with. Um, that's fair. Let's, well, let's, let's put a pin in that because yeah. we'll get to the virtual reality discussion in a second. So that's fair. I, I could I could be presuming too much, um, but it does it does occur to me that like our our concerns in this automation side. Well, we'll we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yeah. Right. I shouldn't jump ahead too far. But you mentioned. But um, I I will agree uh, yeah, with you ahead. in one sense that like you could argue, I possibly would make this argument that we we are kind of living in a virtual reality simulation anyway with the internet mm-hmm. and the kinds of. Mm-hmm knowledge or information that is fed to it it's all to some extent constructed and mediated through a, to us through an artificial interface of some kind and mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's doing it in a way at the moment that i think is problematic because of how it both captures our attention and also undermines our capacity to pay attention and does so for a profit motive right so there's that corrupting factor that you've already mentioned um but yeah so before we get to uh, discussing the t- the kinds of utopias, I did have a, a note where I was re- as I was reading through this, and you're talking about flourishing, which I love as a as a virtue theorist sympathizer. Um, I was curious about how sort of robustly objective you see your account of flourishing as being. Do you really feel like there are lives that are of more and worse value, and are you concerned about the potential elitism that comes with that kind of um, perspective? Yeah, so. Uh, you said to me in, in the email you sent me beforehand that you thought I relied on a robustly objectivist account. I mean, maybe I do, but I I, th- I tend to think that I'm somewhat agnostic about the precise 
theory of meaning. I probably lean somewhat in the direction of, of objectivist counts, but I'm, I would also really define myself more as a, a hybridist. So in the sense that I think you need a mix of objective and subjective conditions to have a mm-hmm. meaningful and flourishing life. Um, you know, just one illustration of this for people listening is that Susan Wolf has this theory of meaning in life, which is based on the notion of fitting fulfillment, which is mm-hmm. that it's it's not enough that you do things that have some kind of objective value or worth. You have to be effectively fulfilled or satisfied by what you're doing. So there has to be this kind of matching of your subjective experience of the world and what you are actually doing in the world in order for your life to flourish. Yeah, well, it's really funny that you bring up Wolf because she's exactly who I have in mind when I was reading this part. And I'm thinking because I, I teach her projects of worth arguments. And she basically says in the section where she talks about projects of worth that, like, this is the most controversial part of her theory of a good life because she assumes that it's not merely a matter of subjective preference which things are actually worth doing or not. Some projects are actually more worthy of being done than others are. And that, to me—and and she basically admits she has no— meta ethics or metaphysics to back up this realist claim that she's making but she nonetheless thinks that like this realist view is part of an essential part of understanding a meaningful life so that's why i was curious if you you follow that you agree with that in a sense that some things are worth doing in a kind of almost intrinsic way or at least a non-instrumental kind of way so i mean i do definitely think and this is something i make a lot of in in the later chapters on you know, the virtual utopia that there are certain things that are worth doing intrinsically mm-hmm. irrespective of kind of uh broader consequences of them and i do agree with your concern about very strongly objectivist theories being elitist in some way that they kind of hierarchically order lives and they suggest that some lives are worth more than others and this is actually a critique i have of some of the traditional objectivist accounts of meaning in life so you know some people mm-hmm. say that the meaning attaches to the good the true and the beautiful so to have a meaningful life you need mm-hmm. to either do something good you know morally benefit the world in some sense you need to contribute to human understanding and knowledge in some way or you know make things of beauty um mm-hmm. or yeah i guess yes yeah to, to produce something of beauty of aesthetic quality i mean that might be to modern ears one of the more controversial aspects of that but it seems but, yeah to, to produce something that has some kind of substantial value to it i think broadly speaking yes makes sense. Yeah. and i like i think a lot of us share the intuition that a good life is one that produces something of value in that kind of way yeah, I think I think we do, but I I do think that that some versions of that anyway are they rely on forms of objective value that are scarce and elitist mm-hmm. in in some sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- this yeah. seems to be definitely true. If the goal of life, if a meaningful and flourishing life, has to produce, let's say, some kind of scientific insight or knowledge or new, some contribution to human knowledge, mm-hmm. then it, many of those contributions are limited, and that like only one or two people can make those contributions. You know. Um, mm-hmm. Once Einstein formulated the special and general theories of relativity, he took that off the table, so no one else could really contribute that objective value to the world anymore. Yeah, and then you have, I mean, you have the problem of, um, like, Wolf talks about the hard case of the farmer who just likes to farm to get more pigs, to get more land, to farm, to get more pigs. Like, is that a too Sisyphean kind of life to be a life of flourishing? 
Um, and it, like to to translate it into our current discussion, right? If I, I I'm I'm a big video game player. I have yeah. been since since I got addicted in preschool. Um, since my since my father handed me an addictive substance when I was a small child, and I continued to be addicted to it for the rest of my life. Um, and I've currently been playing a lot of Stardew Valley, and. Is there anything bad about a life that's spent sort of virtually farming a virtual farm to get more virtual cows to like, is there anything bad about that life? Or can we say that that is a life of flourishing? So like what I would say is that it it probably is, um, you know, I don't, maybe I'm a bit like wolf when it comes to certain kinds of arguments that it, I don't have, you know, a strong meta meta view on on all of these things that that can like, i can't justify myself all the way down at a certain point in time i, mm-hmm. I just reach sort of base intuitions about what is good and what is uh, contributing <laughs> to flourishing last week's guest was telling us about how intuitions are bad and we shouldn't use them it's funny we go, i go back and forth on this topic a lot i'm i'm sympathetic to the use of intuitions so i was laughing because i i appreciate your admitting to saying look at the end of the day i ground out at certain intuitions and that's the end of the conversation for me yeah, like part of this is influenced by, you know, my entry point into a lot of philosophy was like philosophy of religion. And I mm-hmm. I think that, you know, at a certain point in time, a lot of debates about the existence of God in particular, they bottom out in certain kind of, you know, unquestionable intuitions that people have about the nature of reality. You know, somebody mm-hmm. like me, who's not religious, thinks that, you know, the, the sui generis facts of the universe, the, the kind of material or metaphysical base of the universe is non-mental in some way so Mm -hmm. whereas other people have a very strong sense or strong view that the opposite is true you know that right it's mentality first and i find that you know a point is reached in those debates where you just can't really argue any further because people's grounding intuitions are so different um and they mm-hmm. kind of maybe sometimes I feel like people get attached to those intuitions just for the sake of it within the debate. Maybe they're not really attached to them and they don't agree mm-hmm. with them. And if you trace out all the consequences or implications of those intuitions, they lead to contradictions. But at a certain point in time, I just think that some kind of intuitions are unavoidable in, in these things. That's fair. Yeah. I, I, I'm sympathetic to this view, actually. So uh, now that we've um, grounded out on the theory side and the bedrock of intuitions that we all eventually come to. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about your different theories of utopias? So the second half of the book, right, is laying out, and you you sort of broadly divided into two options: cyborg utopias um, and virtual utopias. But before you know, choosing between those, you also give us a little bit of a nice background on traditional accounts of utopias. Do you want to talk about the different sort of how we've sorted the best possible worlds into different categories in this in this discussion yeah i'm happy to do so i mean maybe just again for people who are listening since i i divide the second half of the book into these two utopias cyborg utopia and virtual utopia like there is a reason for that division which is that mm-hmm. i think you know the 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 challenge that automating technologies pose to humanity is that they threaten human cognitive dominance in a sense and so mm-hmm. we have two f- ways of responding to that threat. We can either sort of double down and try to re- gain cognitive dominance. And I view that mm-hmm. as, or the way of doing that that I look at in the book is to basically make ourselves more like the machines that are threatening our dominance, to kind of merge ourselves with them. 
so that we we retain significance in the cognitive niche as i call it and then the the other option is to right. somehow re- retreat from that world that kind of race that competition and that's the virtual utopia so i just wanted to throw that in as that's that's why no, that's I, good and yeah. i think i think it is a good fork right and i've um we've been doing for our bonus content working through super intelligence by nick bostrom so yeah. um hopefully at least patrons especially will be keyed up on sort of the the pluses and minuses of these different approaches to this impending problem yeah so i mean your patrons may also be interested in checking out a series i did years ago on nick bostrom's book mm-hmm. on my my blog oh cool um oh great yeah we'll link that in the show notes yeah. if you send me a link that'd be great sure uh, so yeah, to, to get back to the the utopianism and the theories of utopia, so like what, yeah. you know, one of the things I wanted to do in the book is to try and rehabilitate a form of utopianism, mm-hmm. because I think utopia is something that has a a bad rap, and people really recoil from using that term to d- describe themselves. In fact, in conversations with many people since the book has come out. It seems to be, particularly in the U.S., I think that a lot of people have this notion that a, a utopian is someone who's naive and foolish in some pretty way. Pretty much. That's pretty much what we're taught. Yep. Yeah. Which is kind it's, of... It has a very negative connotation to it. It's, you know, we, we're taught that it means no place, and that's supposed to be ironic because, like, no one ever actually gets there. And, and, and I think that, like, especially the American individualist sort of libertarian bloodline has has sort of hard utopia as like the communist ideal that is so obviously going to fall apart in any given chance right yeah so. no so I, I think that's right i think that's the association that has become dominant in the sort of latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st century that utopianism is always doomed to failure because it's always based around some kind of blueprint for what the ideal society should be and those blueprints always fail because some people don't like them or you have to mm-hmm be very coercive or violent in enforcing or creating them. And that that's why most utopias end up being dystopic as opposed to utopic. Um, so yeah, one of the things I think uh, within the book that I rely on is a typology of different ideal societies. It actually comes from a, a book by a historian called J.C. Davis. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called Utopia and the Ideal Society. So he argued that you shouldn't lump together all kind of idealist views of human of the human future or of human society that there are subtle and important differences between them so he had this mm-hmm. kind of five part typology where he talked about the cocaine the arcadia the perfect moral commonwealth the millennium and the utopia and so the cocaine actually comes from a medieval poem i believe it was written or first recorded by uh, monks in ireland so that's where i'm from so i have to throw that in as a reference uh-huh. Uh-huh. um and so P- point for your team good job yeah yeah uh, i you know since i'm <laughs> uh, i'm a very strong nationalist of course and, and yeah why don't you steal some valor from those irish monks yeah I, it, it for those centuries ago that i can feel it i still claim ownership <laughs> over their achievements but so they the amount what they were imagining there was like a post-scarcity world so if you look at all the things, mm-hmm. the forms of deprivation in human life, and obviously they're writing at a point in time where life was much more precarious, they tried to imagine a world in which all those deprivations were eliminated and you had everything you could possibly want. So like, nature was just abundant and it provided you with everything you could eat. You know, all kinds of food grew on trees and 
Um, there was also a slightly subversive element to the cocaine as well, in that like the, tradi- the traditional hierarchies of power were subverted within the cocaine. Yeah, I really like that. It's this sort of the state of nature, right? Like a Rousseau state of nature instead of a Hobbesian kind of one, where it's like everyone's happy and there isn't this war of all against all, and so you don't need society. Yeah, exactly. But it, it's, it's because, and I think this is important for the typology, it's because nature itself yeah, provides, mm. is, is no longer a scarce... Right, resource, there's yeah. infinite resources yeah. in some kind of way, or yeah. So yeah, so that's your um post scarcity state of nature, right? And then like your cocaine, right? <laughs> I'm not going to try to pronounce it very effectively, but it sounds yeah. nice when you say it. Arcadia then is it's actually kind of similar in many ways. So it's again about a state of nature, but it, I I guess it's not so much an abundant state of nature, but it's a state of nature or a state of existence in which humans are in perfect harmony with nature and the natural rhythms. So it's kind of like a primitive form of, of pastoralism or sustainable living, mm-hmm. I guess, is mm-hmm. what's being imagined there. And so like, right. both of those theories focus on nature and humans' relationship with nature. So I think that's what's distinctive about those visions of the ideal society. The third kind, then, is the perfect moral commonwealth. And this is really about human as as individuals that we're we're the problem and we need to be perfected in some way through kind of mm-hmm. moral education and reform and development so we become kind of perfect moral citizens and that will solve the problems that we have mm-hmm. so uh, this is sort of the progressive liberal ideal of society reaching a state of human perfection by habituation or something like that yeah and it, like it, at least traditionally this also had a a fairly strong religious element to it that it was through kind of mm. religious training and revelation that we could attain moral perfection um may- well, well we'll just leave we'll leave that part out we'll just yeah. we'll swap in we'll swap in something else a little bit of cult literature there or something yeah so there might so. be a a more kind of secular post-enlightenment version of this which kind of eliminates the or reduces the religious dimension to it uh, the fourth kind of ideal society this is more immediately or specifically religious which is the millennium which is the notion mm-hmm. effectively that you know humans and human society is doomed unless there is some kind of divine intervention to save us but when that divine mm-hmm. intervention comes then we will achieve the kind of ideal state yeah and would you lump um alien divine intervention into the millennium kind of category where the super benevolent species shows up and and showers us with resources and technology and information yeah, I guess I would, um, because ultimately the the goal, the idea here is that the the savior is external to us. It's some kind of agent mm-hmm. that is external to us. That said, I I might kind of be a little bit reluctant to endorse that view, because I mm-hmm. think that many people will criticize you know singularitarians nowadays as effectively following a similar route that the AI will save us eventually or. Potentially, sure. uh, but uh, maybe it's a fair. Uh, many people have made the criticism of singularitarians that they are kind of a religious movement with, that believes in a divine savior. It just happens to be um, a super benevolent AI. Yeah, yeah. I did an episode on Rocco's Basilisk, and I can say they absolutely, I think, will meet the criteria for if we're going to define anything as a religious belief. That's that certainly could meet the list. I think so, but it's not. You know, neither here nor there. I just think it's an, it is an interesting how these things shade into each other in certain ways uh right and then you've got your your last one right which is going to be where all of these things are going to fall into our utopia so what distinguishes utopia from all these other ones 
So I think like what distinguishes Utopia is that it doesn't assume a kind of perfectibility or perfection of mm-hmm. humanity or nature, but does hinge on this notion that through technological and institutional reform, we can build a better world. So like, this is the kind of point that I was making in the book that of the forms of ideal society, at least within J.C. Davis's typology, a utopia is the most realistic kind, not the most fanciful or speculative or outlandish mm-hmm. style. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that it is really interesting that, I mean, given, I, I, also, I think there are limitations on what technology can do for us, but I do agree that, like, it's more plausible than the other options. Yeah, so like the solution kind of comes from us and through our kind of collective endeavor, our collective institutions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I possibly would loosely define human institutions as a kind of technology if you push me sure. to do so. Yeah, I would, I'd be sympathetic to that um, categorization as well. And you give a, another definition of utopia beyond the sort of technology saves us definition, which is it benefits everyone while respecting rights, which is, I guess it seems to me that you're sort of saying, right, a utopia is a place that balances all of the sort of what I would call the competing moral foundations in a sort of universally acceptable or broadly acceptable kind of way. Is that is that a fair account of how you see this? Yeah, like, I don't go into the weeds on this that much mm-hmm. in the book and I th- you know this is something that people could criticize so the, the definition of utopia that i use is not mine it comes from a guy called christopher york who i actually interviewed on mm-hmm. my own podcast and kind of influenced my thinking about this so he defines a utopia as any prospectively achievable scheme of radical social political improvement which would if installed leave every affected party better off and none worse off while respecting the rights of all so there's this kind of mm-hmm. maybe contractualist condition within there that the... The very Rawlsian utopia you have. Yeah, there. sure. And, you know, I, <laughs> at the same time that I wrote this book, I also read, and I think I buried in a footnote, a reference to Gerald Gauss's book, The Tyranny of the Ideal, which, mm-hmm. you know, criticizes a lot of these kind of Rawlsian schemas for utopia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you really pushed me on that definition, I think there are weaknesses in it. You know, I'm not sure that you can... I do actually mention this in the book. I think I don't think you can, you know, imagine a society in which everybody is better off and none worse off. Like yeah. at the very least, it seems very difficult to guarantee that that condition is enforced in in practice. I mean, if nothing else, there's a substantial contingent of individuals who want things to be the way they currently are uh, for for some sometimes for justified reasons, right? There are people who think that like. Being a real man is about doing physical labor, and so if you automate away all physical labor, you deprive men of the chance to be real men, and that, that undermines their flourishing in a substantial kind of way, and there just may be no way to—and we'll talk about with the, with the virtual utopia if this could be satisfying to them, but like if they really are gung-ho about the actual work in the real world in the right kind of way or something like that, there may just not be a way to satisfy them and everybody else at the same time, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, okay. So I'm, ju- I'm actually just even thinking that I... There's a guy, a friend of mine, uh, Ole Martin Mohn, he wrote a paper about the, the Unabomber's ethics, which discusses some of this. So mm-hmm. like people who follow that philosophy, and there are some people who uh, mm-hmm. have time for it, um, you know, that is radically kind of anti-technology and kind of neo-primitivism. So they're not going to accept certainly the kind of technologized version of utopia that I imagine in in the book 
or t- defended right. in the book. So, but like what I right. like about this definition of utopia is that it doesn't focus on this notion that we are going to reach some kind of omega point for society, that there is a single blueprint for the ideal society. It's more that there's a kind of attempts to radically improve society through socio-technical reform. And also that Mm -hmm. when we're doing this, we don't instrumentalize the people. So I think this is the criticism that libertarians, let's say, would have of communism is that some people were sacrificed in order to achieve this ideal communist state. And that Mm -hmm. the notion was that the ends justify the means here, that unfortunately some people will have to lose out, but this is just just the price we have to pay to achieve the ideal world. And this is a criticism that Karl Popper made of all utopian movements, is that they tend to justify extreme violence in order to achieve their ideal blueprint. Mm-hmm. And so I think we should avoid that. And so building in that condition that you want to try and respect the rights of all people in society is important in avoiding or hedging against this risk of violence. Right, or a risk of a brave new world or something, right? Some sort of... Ill, ill-gained consequentialist utopia yeah um so yeah okay so let's talk about the two potential kinds of utopias right we've got the cyborg utopia versus the virtual utopia and i think the cyborg utopia it seems like is the more low-hanging fruit in the sense that there are problems with it on various fronts what do you see like are the main problems with the cyborg utopia like maybe we should just say something even briefly about what the advantages of it would be before we talk about okay. the problems with sure. it because yeah. otherwise it maybe it, it would just seem like there's no point in discussing it. Sure, that's fair. So like I you know I guess like what the advantages of it are is that well there's a sense in which we are already cyborgs and several philosophers have made this argument like mm-hmm. you know Andy Clark has this book called or I don't know if it's a it's the title of the book, but he's certainly written things with the phrase that we're all natural-born cyborgs, because we are highly dependent on and intertwined with technology. So, if you take that to be true, you could argue that this is just kind of part of the trajectory that we're on: is that we are becoming more and more integrated with machines. At the moment, we do it basically through technology that is external to us in some sense, but that we work within close symbiotic relationships but over time we will Mm -hmm. integrate the technology more with ourselves by you know directly integrating chips and devices into our brains let's say right and this will effectively augment us so that we are no longer undermined or compromised by automating technologies that the cognitive Mm -hmm. power that we are losing to them will be regained and so you know, we can continue to flourish in all the ways that we uh, currently flourish and possibly even more ways as well. So, you know, I talk about in the book that the cyborg utopia, through cyborg technologies, we can kind of play around with the possibilities of human existence in new ways. We can mm-hmm. you know, realize new forms of living, new ways of sensing and engaging with the world. Uh, we can explore the vastness of space and maybe achieve hyper extended lives and so forth. So like I talk about all these potential benefits of the cyborg right. ideal. And I should say I'm, I'm totally on board with all of that. I am uh, very pro sort of, you know, neo-futurist body augmentation kinds of stuff. I, 
I do think that we, you know, should be continuing to sort of push the bounds of identity and increasing the flexibility and the fluidity of identity through the implementation of more technology in a variety of different kinds of ways. So I think all of that is great. And then I guess my my concern is how much of a um, solution that is in in the near in the, even in the middle term for the kinds of automation problems that we'll be seeing because it just seems like the technology for automation is far going to outpace the technology for increased cyborgization, right? Yeah. Um, so, like, effectively, that's one of the arguments that I have against the cyborg utopia is that the timeline here doesn't seem to join up with the timeline of automating technologies. So, and also, like, it's, it seems technically difficult and risky, maybe, to achieve these extreme forms of cyborgization, at least in the mm-hmm. short to medium term. Right. So, for example, if our concern is um, automation will eventually lead to something like super intelligences, which will automate, which will sort of take over in extreme kinds of ways, potentially, that, like, trying to get a human being up to a super intelligent level through cyborg implementation is is not going to, I think, outpace that kind of increase in AI intelligence. And so that, that probably won't be a way to, like, like you were saying with the dominance problem, right? This is not going to be a really functional solution to the dominance problem. Yeah, exactly. I also think, you know, one of the things that pursuing this solution would do would, is that it would actually double down on many of the worst aspects of work in the current economy. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, one of the things... I do within the books try to argue for the possibility of some post-work future of transcending the demands of work. And it seems to me actually pursuing the cyborg solution wouldn't enable us to do that because you just get like mm-hmm. cyborg workers and all the kinds of competitive pressures that are currently placed on workers it would basically go to 100. You know, they, they would increase massively because they can be augmented through technology. So we can demand more of them in various ways. So, so it seems to me that right. there's you'd, a risk of that. You'd certainly need to like have a parallel, fully automated AI system that is still taking away like the work so that the augmented cyborg individuals can focus on whatever they feel like focusing on or something like that. Yeah, no, exactly. But also like just a, to go back to Andy Clark's point about us all being cyborgs mm-hmm. already, natural-born cyborgs, sure. There's a sense in which our current economy is a cyborg economy in that mm-hmm. many workers do work in these kind of close symbiotic relationships with technology. And one of the points I tried to make earlier in the book is that this isn't very pleasant or good for many of those workers. So, you know, there's a sense in mm-hmm. which an Uber driver is a cyborg worker. Sure, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're, yeah. Si- we're sitting here talking to two pieces of technology that are interfacing between us, right? Like we are cyborgs right now. Yeah, I mean, there are also like more philosophical concerns about the cyborg utopia mm-hmm. that I discuss in the book, and I don't know how much weight to place on these, but they seem some of them seem significant to me. So, like one concern with like the ship of Theseus kind of stuff. Yeah, so that's one of them. So, like I talk, I have a section in the book where I talk about the you know the existential lightness of being a cyborg. So there's mm-hmm. not so much the identity issue, which maybe that's what you're getting at with the, the ship of Theseus example, but more just that if we become so integrated with technology that we can kind of replace all human parts with technology. Mm-hmm. It seems that there could be a a triviality to our lives that is maybe existentially worrisome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like what I'm imagining here, and this is the example I use in the book, is um, 
there's a series of science fiction novels by Richard Morgan, which was also a, a series on Netflix, Altered Carbon. Uh, some people oh, like yeah, yeah, we did a Philosophers in Space episode on it. Okay, and so, you know, I, I'm aware that people criticize this book and the series for being inconsistent in the way it portrays this future, but one of the ideas within it is that we've achieved this technology where we can download our brains into these things that they call stacks and just insert them into mm-hmm. different biological bodies. Mm-hmm. And so as long as you don't destroy the stack, you don't kill the human. You don't kill the person. Right. And as long as you so as and as long as you can find another body, you can always just kind of be reanimated and uh, brought back right. to life. And one of the things that this, this does cheapens death, right? Yeah. What one of the things that this does in that future is that it makes physical harm to the body really trivial. I know that there are mm. arenas where humans basically try to kill each other biologically um, with no mm-hmm. kind of risks attached to it. Yeah, and they really drive it home in this series because they have this spouse, this couple, a husband and wife, whose job it is to fight each other to the death. Um, and so it, it really drives home like how it alienates you from your embedded cognition and your side of your body and all these kinds of things. Yeah, and so like it, it could be that the kind of future you're imagining there that you know, if I can mm-hmm. if I can destroy my arm and just replace it tomorrow with a functionally equivalent, possibly even better form or if I can destroy certain parts of my brain and then replace them easily without eliminating my, my identity in some way, that there could be a a triviality to all the actions performed that kind of strips away all meaning and value from them. So that could be a, a one concern. But also there's just a sense that this would be such a deeply alien world that it's not clear how we would be able to evaluate or relate to it. And like this is one of the conditions I have within the book about utopias is that they must in some sense be rationally accessible to us, that they, they must be something mm-hmm. that we can desire from our current standpoint. And it might be that we can't desire these kinds of alien futures that are just too distant and too different from what we currently have. Yeah, that is an interesting limitation. Um, So, okay, so this brings us to our final point here, right? Uh, Virtual utopias. Why is the virtual utopia sort of the best option, it seems like, that you're presenting here? And what are our major concerns with this? Yeah, and like, this is probably the trickiest part of the book, and I haven't come up with a good way to talk about this in like five minutes um okay fair enough <laughs> because it, i appreciate that what i'm arguing for in this chapter of the book is probably counterintuitive to many people um mm-hmm. so like effectively what i argue is that it's you know instead of trying to compete with technology we just retreat from reality and do something else and you know what what i argue for in the book is that we pursue the utopia of games which is comes from mm-hmm. bernard suits's book the grasshopper oh interesting i was thinking of um player of games in um uh ian banks's civilization uh series yeah like there's there's certainly a similarity to that but it's been a very long time since i read that book mm-hmm. and i from what i recall though there in that book the game was kind of highly competitive wasn't it or well, so the main player is from um, the the advanced civilization, and he plays games that that are not that way. But yes, he goes and plays in a tournament against um, a species who is still sort of pre enlightenment in that kind of way. And yeah, it is it's violent and and competitive and such. 
Yeah, okay. So I, I, I probably should have reread it then and before I um, oh, no wrote problem. the book. But so that's actually more interesting if the uh, if it's the notion that it's a a pre Enlightenment civilization that he's going back to to this tournament. Like he travels to a planet to participate in the tournament. Yeah, it's a it's a super super cool story. But I, I, I mean, I get what you're saying. Sort of, I think we got all you know people who've seen Ready Player One or familiar with any of this kind of modern internet kind of situation or understand what you mean. I think perhaps intuitively by the um, utopia of games but is there anything that they should that they wouldn't initially think of that you want to include in that account yeah uh, so i mean in bernard suits's dialogue he you know, has this definition of what a game is which is probably familiar to a lot of people nowadays because i think many game designers have adopted it i recall it was a jane mcgonagall mm-hmm. wrote a book that mightn't be her name actually um mm-hmm. called reality is broken maybe it's, oh, i can't remember her, mm-hmm. her name um in which she uses his definition so, like, he argued that a game is any kind of you accept some kind of arbitrary goal and arbitrary set of obstacles to that goal, mm-hmm. and then you that's the, that's the essence of the game. I mean, there's a more right. complex definition that is, there's three conditions that you have to have for a game, which is that you you have to have a pre-losery goal, which is a an end state to the game, or a, a way of mm-hmm. scoring points, not necessarily an end state, a way of showing success in the game that can be defined independently of the game. Then you have a set of constitutive rules that define the particular pathway that you have to take to achieving that prelusory goal. So these are the voluntary obstacles that you assume within the game. Yeah. And then you have a losery attitude, which is just that you accept the game. You voluntarily commit to the rules, the constitutive rules of the game. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, we're way too far over time for this, but the Socratic in me immediately wants to be like, is that really applied to all games, though? Like, think of the game itself, the game that you lose by remembering that the game is being played, that everyone who's listening to this just lost because I've reminded them about that game. That game doesn't have any end conditions to it, right? It just it just goes on forever, and whenever you remember that the game exists, you lose the game at that particular moment. Yeah, so I, like, I think there's a way of modifying Suits' account that avoids that mm-hmm. that particular problem, is that you don't necessarily have it to have an end state to the game. You just have to have uh-huh. some way of keeping track of success conditions within the game. But uh, um, That's fair. As you say, so, we, we've gone over time, but so that's the so if you follow that definition anyway, um, if, and if that's kind of the essence of the virtual utopia is playing games, then one of the arguments I make is that it actually doesn't really depend on technology at all, per se. So, mm-hmm. so a lot of people when they think about a virtual utopia, they assume that what I'm arguing for is that people are going to strap themselves into some virtual reality headset and exists in mm-hmm. a computer simulated environment and like that might be one way of realizing the virtual utopia but it's not the only way because what i think is the kind of core condition of virtuality is uh, that you're not focusing on sort of some broader instrumental purpose of the activity that mm. you're performing that's really interesting. I think that's a good way to redefine that. So that's what you mean when you say um, what we call virtual is real and what we call real is virtual. Do you want to talk about that inversion maybe a little bit? Yeah. So like so within that chapter, I take what I would call a deflationary strategy to arguing in defense of the virtual utopia. So I, because I know that people are going to be resistant to this notion, what I'm trying to argue is that actually the virtual life that I'm imagining is not that different from many aspects of our current lives. 
in that many of aspects of our current lives are virtual in the sense that we live in artificial constructed environments and that we project a social reality onto that environment that isn't intrinsic to the mm -hmm. physical world. So we're already creating kind of virtual reality simulations in our brains when we interact with and work with our fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. So all we really have to do to realize a virtual utopia is to take one further step, which is to try, um, achieve this kind of post-instrumentalist or hypo-instrumentalist society so that there, mm -hmm. you don't focus on the economic, social, or objective purpose of your activities so much as you focus on the intrinsic virtues of the activity. And the other thing I would say as well is that within that definition or that understanding of virtual utopia, it's still the case that many real things will happen to you. So it's, it's not that all aspects of your life are mm -hmm. unreal in some way. So, you know, you will have real emotions, you will have real feelings, you will form real friendships, you will have real achievements within that environment. Um, mm -hmm. It's just that, that certain aspects or conditions that we associate with reality are ignored or no longer in view. I appreciate that's, that's very, very abstract, but that's the idea within the book. Well, no, but I think it's a very important clarification that, like, because, yeah, when I hear virtual utopia, I think, oh, you know, we retreat in a very literal sense into the boxes, right? And the boxes give us a world where we can pretend that we're not at the whims of automation in the sense of, you know, that our actions can still have meaning, even if there are AIs that can do them better than we can or something like that. But I think um, it's interesting to think about what a virtual world looks like where we're, we're defining it in terms of, like you said, the shift away from sort of means to an end instrumental kind of reasoning and the shift towards more fixating or we're not fixating, but more focusing on intrinsic value and, and that kind of side of flourishing. Yeah. Like, so that's, that's, that's the argument that I make, or that's the kind of virtual utopia that I defend in the book. And I try to head off certain criticisms and misunderstandings of it. But I think like, of all the chapters within the book, that's the one that probably lives and mm -hmm. dies on its own. And like, I think you kind of have to read the whole thing to fully, mm -hmm. fully grok what I'm trying to argue. Yeah, and do you? I mean, sort of just to briefly touch on some objections before we're way, way, way over time. Is um, there would be the concern of something like boredom or existential malaise or ennui or something that could come about in a society like that? Do you feel like there is a way to avoid that slide? I don't know if there's a way to avoid that slide in the sense that, you know, I'm somebody who doesn't think that there is such a thing as like an ultimate or incorrigible meaning and purpose. I think that everything we can do can be questioned from some perspective. Um, but I, I suppose what I would say is that I don't, I don't think it's any worse than the kind of world that we're currently living in. Um, mm hmm and it, you know, we might say that first world problems grow and that more people have more time to think about these existential issues. But my hunch is that that is kind of better than the alternative of living in a, a hyper-competitive and hyper-precarious um, capitalist economy. But that again, that's kind of maybe somewhere where that's just a hunch or an intuition as opposed to a strong argument. I think it's an intuition that a lot of um, our listeners will be sympathetic too. So I think it's maybe a good point to uh, wrap things up here. Is there anything final you wanted to add? Uh, buttons to put on this? No, uh, it, that's I'm I'm happy to, to close out there. I suppose, look, if if anyone is interested in 
the work that I do, they could probably check out the the blog that I have, which covers a lot. Oh yeah, a lot I'll of have these you. Themes, um, yeah. Well, yeah, I'll have you. I'll have you plug all your things. But before we do that, yeah. I gotta I gotta put you through the lightning round. Okay. Um, right. So, and end of show. Important. Uh, we have to make sure you're on the list for realism versus anti-realism. Um, you're familiar with this, how this works, right? You have to say real or not real, and you can't hedge in any kind of way, but you can, of course, hedge later. Yeah, so. when I'm, my instinct is always going to be to hedge, but okay, go. Great, great. So are you ready? Okay. Uh, is, your, is your readiness real? <laughs> yes, real. <laughs> is the external world real? Real. Colors? Not real. Phenomenal consciousness. Uh, real. Qualia. R- real. Mm, free will. Not real. Selves. Not real. Personal identity. <laughs> real. Oh, I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, go on. All right. No, I like this. I like when people start to split. Um, genders. Uh, not real. Races. Uh, not real. Species. Not real. Morality. I, I just can't help hedging on this. So partly real and partly not real. <laughs> <laughs> you lose one point for that. Uh, rights. Uh, can I say anti-real? So, uh, yeah, not okay. Anti-real about rights. Sure. <laughs> A priori knowledge. Real. A posteriori knowledge. Real. Propositional attitudes. Real. Ideas. It's just so hard. Uh, not, <laughs> not, not real. Not real. All right. Modalities. It depends on whether you ask me on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Um, I don't know. Real. All right. Modal realism. I love it. Gods. Not real. Society. Real, let's say. Um, this is going to be so confusing, but anyway. Yeah, it's no, it's great. Numbers. Real. Abstract entities. Real. Okay. Fictional characters. Not real. Holes. Ooh. Mm. Not real. <laughs> Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Real. Science. Uh, real. <laughs> Natural laws. Mm, not real. Beauty. Not real. And just for you, utopias. Real. If, I have to. I have to say that. No I have dream, to say right? that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to stay on brand. You survived. How do you feel? Um, terrible. As I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I contradicted myself in many ways there. But yeah. 
you know, there's only a couple of options, right? You either you say everything is real or nothing is real, or you contradict yourself a bunch as you fight your way through the reality, yeah. non-reality problem. Yeah. yeah, it's it's. I love putting them all together this way because it is so unnerving. Um, but thank you so much for indulging me, John. And um, do you want to let folks know, like you said, where they can find you besides picking up your book, um, Automation and Utopia? Yeah, so uh, I have a blog called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's maybe an awkward title. Um, doesn't trip off the tongue, but I, that's where you can find everything I do, basically. Okay, fair enough. And on Twitter, I assume? I'm on Twitter at, at John Danaher. Yeah, so there you go. Um, highly recommend checking out the book. It was a fun read. Um, and thank you so much for, for joining us and filling us in on, on one way the void could end up going. Yeah, thanks so much for this. Thank you. Thank you.